Hello and welcome to the Landed Podcast. I'm John Montgomery, co-founder of Landed, a travel company specializing in tailor-made journeys throughout Latin America and the Antarctic. At Landed, we're devoted to exploring these regions, searching out exceptional experiences and locations for our clients. The Landed Podcast profiles some of our favorite places and brings you conversations with friends we've made along the way, explorers, artists, and visionaries. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. Today our guest is Suniva Sorbi. Suniva, or Sunny, is a polar explorer, a fundraiser, a motivational speaker, and a dear friend of ours. Suniva's disarming. She's friendly and self-effacing. But what you might not realize on first meeting her is that she has jaw-dropping resilience and strength. In 1993, Sunova was part of a four-woman expedition that made history by skiing 67 days across Antarctica. During that journey, they covered more than 700 miles. Often, the temperature was as low as negative 60, and headwinds topped 50 miles an hour. Each woman pulled a 200-pound sled, and they were the first women's team to reach the South Pole without the aid of sled dogs, or motorized vehicles. Since then, Sunova's returned to the Antarctic more than 40 times, and she now serves as Director of Sales for Polar Latitudes, a leader in polar expedition cruising. Sunova's also completed expeditions on Kilimanjaro and the Greenland Ice Sheet, and she's planning some new adventures. During this recording, which was made over the internet, there's a little interference in the beginning, it kind of sounds like Sunova's eating a bag of potato chips, which she might have been doing. No problem. But uh, sorry about the noise. We've tried to reduce it. And uh, without further delay, here's my conversation with Sunova Sorby. Sunova Sorby, welcome to the podcast. I'm honored to have you with us. You're near Oslo, Norway today. I am. Um, John, thanks for inviting me. I'm in Tensberg, which is where I was born. It's about an hour and a half from Oslo. And you're visiting your father, is that right? I am. Um, he is uh, 91, and he's on a little bit of a decline. So it's a really special time to be here with, with him and my family. I'm so glad you can be there with him. It's holiday season when we're speaking, and uh, I know he appreciates having you there. It's been it's been really special so far. Uh, the only downfall, I have to be honest, there's no snow. <laughs> it's green. It's spring here. Uh, we've talked about this recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, would you tell us about that one time when you skied with three other women across Antarctica to the South Pole? Do you remember and that? As, do you remember doing that? I, I do remember that. It's one of those life-defining moments that, you know, uh, 20, 22 years ago, uh, I can't forget. Um, but it was a time in my life when I was so hungry for uh, self-knowledge, which every 20-year-old, and if you haven't figured it out in your 20s, you, you're 30 and then you try to figure it out. Um, and I had an opportunity to join this history-making expedition, which I had no clue at that time what that really meant. Um, to me, it was a part, it was an opportunity to be part of something that was physical, um, that was um, scientific. We were doing research on ourselves and something that had a broad reach to school kids around the U.S., Canada, and Europe. And I joined with only four months to prepare Um, I joined late because a team member had dropped out. Um, So I was a woman who showed up uh, eager, naive, if I may say so, (laughs) Um, and just really hungry to be stripped of all my layers, all the comforts. It was kind of, I guess, a female version of Into the Wild, if you've seen that movie. Um, Just the the quest to understand, you know, what's the purpose in this lifetime? Um, What's my purpose? And I joined this group of three women that had known each other for about five years. And we left the U.S. and flew to Punta Arenas, Chile, 
were delayed two weeks, and then we started off on this um, ski expedition. The intention was to go all the way across the Antarctic, 1,500 miles in length. That would take us close to four months. And what ended up happening is really the the, the heartbeat of the story. Um, we didn't make it all the way across, but we made it to the South Pole, and that was historically for women the first. And in the process, we sort of redefined people's perception of what they thought was possible for women in an otherwise male-dominated world of Antarctica. And um, we all had our own different journey on that expedition, and mine was was full of a lot of physical pain. I became very, very sick. So my story is one that um, in our documentary became, I think, the the thread through the entire expedition, um, and that was that all of us discovered great strengths through all of this, but as a team, we came together through uh, sickness and a lot of pain and, and illness, actually. It was quite quite powerful. And the biggest part of the story for, for, for myself and for, I think, my team members, Anne Bancroft, Sue Giller, and Anne Alvera, was the biggest gift, the biggest came out of it, was that the four of us, went as a group of friends and came back as friends and we really connected with the kids that were following us and that to me when you're down in the dumps and you just can't find a reason to lift your head up and keep going um it was for the kids and i have to tell you that our our story became the grassroots movement and the the kids who believed in our abilities um so it's a fantastic thing to have been part of. And today, 22 years later, I, I don't forget it because it's a power of the people. It's the power of collaboration. It's the power of friendship. It's the power of love. It's the power of, uh, belief and faith, which the kids had in us. So, and these are, these um, are school kids who helped, I guess, fundraise for the mission and were tracking your progress and, you know, fr- from their homes, pre-internet days using, using maps and uh, you know, sort of updates, regular updates via radio, and they, you know, were also learning about the science of what you were doing. Is that right? That's right. Um, we had put together different curriculum c- components for them because we wanted to uh, teach them, you know, have a live, a living project that they could follow, that they could be inspired by, and so it was partly science. Um, part of it was history. Part of it was nutrition, um, uh, social studies, geography. Uh, it, it was pretty. It was very exciting for us to actually put that together and know that the kids were with little little pushpins on a map, if you can imagine, um, taped to the wall with uh, you know little updates every three nights when we would radio out. They would be able to get the information on where we were with a uh, with a radio call that we made and and a recorded message. And they would call in to that message and be able to track our progress. It was really phenomenal. And this is pre-internet, so it was just maybe even more powerful because there was not back-and-forth communication, not immediate um, gratification, you know? Right. This this mission took how long to plan? Close to five years. Five it was years. a huge project. And you yeah. came into the project... What? Right. Just a few, just a few months before <laughs> departure. Yeah, I get. You know, it's funny to look to to understand that because uh, I was in the minor leagues, if we want to use minor and major leagues as a comparative um, framework. But I was living in a world of the minor leagues. I'd done lots of trips, uh, nothing solo. Um, had experience in, in a lot of different things, but I had um, certainly wasn't operating and hadn't, I didn't have the experience on the same level as the other women. And, you know, when a person drops out of a five-year plan, it just, everything's upside down. Um, so, so the and group were, had done a Greenland trip, right? And that's as a prep, a, a, a dress rehearsal. And yeah. one of the team members just realized mentally, maybe she, she wasn't ready for Antarctica or didn't have maybe the drive she, she thought she had to do that mission. She didn't need it and dropped out. And you're living in San Diego, your friend and you at dinner talking, you're learning <laughs> that there's maybe a need and, and you're talking about, well, who would fit this role? And you, you say within yourself, 
you know, it sounds funny. It sounds crazy, but, but it's me. Yeah. Imagine that. And I'll never forget that moment because, um, and I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this and I, I hope so. Although we maybe not, we wouldn't admit it that there's that moment when somebody says something to you or looks you in the eye and gives you a compliment or tells you something that they see in you that maybe you don't see in yourself or haven't acknowledged. And over dinner that night, my, my friend Deborah, who interviewed Anne Bancroft for a big feature story, she learned on that call that, um, that Sarah Harrison had dropped out and they were secretly looking for a fourth. And she was telling me this and telling me about the expedition. And, and I was like a lot of people at that time. I thought, what? women are going to ski across Antarctica? And I said, why? And she's telling me that for the research, for the children, um, to bridge the gap between, you know, um, gender uh, diversity and what we, what people have perceived to be possible for women in the physical world, et cetera. And um, I immediately, immediately, just on a surface level felt, I want to help them. I want to support them somehow. And I thought it would be through getting gear or something. I was in the outdoor industry mm. and had a lot of great connections. I thought it was going to be like that. And, um, and then she looked at me and said, I think you would be a perfect fit. And I looked at her as if she was crazy. And, and it wasn't moments later that it actually sunk deeper into me. And I thought, and then I was afraid to admit to anybody that I actually thought that I wanted to be part of this. Yeah. And what that meant. And your job on the trip, describe your role within the group. Everybody had sort of a primary, and then they had some, some other roles. But your primary role was research? That's correct. I was, um, yeah, um, on every expedition, every has, everybody has a, prime, a, a primary responsibility, uh, as we call it. But then collectively, everybody does everything else. And um, you had no shared. research experience, right? I mean... No, all I was doing was actually um, facilitating collecting data. And so we had, we were working with the University of Minnesota. Um, they were collecting <clears throat> information on uh, the physiological part of us. So it was essentially, I was, <laughs> it's kind of funny to say this, but John, here's what I had to do. I had to make sure that all of us every three days and on that third day, every three hours on that day, had to spit into a test tube right. um, that was about three inches tall and maybe one inch in diameter. And we had to, they were collecting saliva samples and they were measuring our, our biorhythms when we would peak and the impact of a high fat diet on our cycles um, and collectively what impact did that have on the team. So I, I just had to make sure that we were doing that. Um, it sounds like an easy thing, but it's not because when you're out there and you're surviving, you actually don't feel like doing that. <laughs> and I was also responsible for making sure that we were doing the, um, psychological questionnaires that we had to compile every night. And these and were I was not in charge just of, a few test questions. You were hundred. Yeah. Every night, every night. And, um, there's a, there's a scene in the documentary pulls apart that, uh, where Anne Bancroft, I'm actually interviewing her, and I'm saying, Anne, what are you doing? And she says, I'm filling out the questionnaire. And I said, well, can you tell me what one of the questions is? She goes, well, how, how did you cope today? Did you cry? Did you pray? Did you write? Did you read? Did you, you know, what did you, how did you cope? And um, she says, oh, and there's another question here for how are you feeling today? Or how are you feeling right now? And she goes, um, depressed, uh, hungry, sad. And she goes, there's no place here for irritable because this questionnaire is really making me irritable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. You did that. Yeah. You skied from the coast to the pole carrying, I think, 200-pound sleds each, no dogs, no mechanized transport, and, you know, as you've said, no men on the expedition. This is, this is pioneering. This is in a day when uh, expeditions are you know, primarily run by, financed by, by men. That's right, yeah. And I think uh, what was truly pioneering was um, this was really before 
a lot of ex- the expedition world became really glorified by a lot of ex- excess marketing, if you will. Um, before expeditions and all the outdoor pursuits became, I'll use the word sexy. Um, we, we were doing this at a time when, you know, women weren't in that world. We weren't like, we weren't, uh, accepted, um, as athletes in extreme sports. And this was a really extreme It's not an extreme sport. It's not a popular sport at all, but it was an extreme thing that was otherwise reserved traditionally. And, almost exclusively for men. So yeah, this was, this was pretty, pretty out there for, for men even. Um, and it was really out there for women to be doing this. It's so, quite something. Sonny, who, who do you think you are? I mean, you're living in San Diego. You have no expedition experience. You're I'm not just a researcher, <laughs> but you felt a call to do this, right? I mean, let, let's give you some background though. You had been planning, you love to be outdoors. You're a fantastic skier you know, you're very self-confident and aware. Um, you grew up, spent a lot of time in, in, if I'm not wrong, in Canada and also in Norway. Um, you know, you've been around and you were planning an expedition, uh, across North America, right? By canoe and, and by hiking, right? Yep. So this wasn't totally foreign to you, but still, who do you think you are? Yeah, I know. Bold. Um, but it, but was there a sense of, you know, destiny to this? Did you feel called to do it in a way that gave you some confidence, some some reassurance? Um, it's a really good question, and it, it without question, I was called to do this, and I. You know, when I look back at what I had been planning, which was a canoe expedition from New York to Nome, following the old fur trader route, I wanted to build a canoe. I had one other teammate with me. We were going to be four people, two canoes. Um, the sense of adventure and and the um, just wrapping my arms and my head and my heart around doing something long, like a long distance trip, was really appealing to me. And it was very appealing to me at the age of 30 and even in my 20s because I didn't grow up privileged, but I grew up comfortable, um, comfortable enough to where I felt like to grow or to really understand the core of me and my heartbeat and what I was hungry for, I had to be stripped first. Um, and I didn't know how else to get there except through something physical, because I've, I grew up in a very physical world. Um, you know, I, brothers I just grew up, pardon me? Your brothers and no out, outdoor sports or what? Tell me about that. Tell me about Yeah, my family, world. I'm, I'm a little bit of i I'm different from everybody, from all my siblings. Um, I most like my father. Um, he is a retired sea captain. Yeah was always, you know, pushing the boundaries of the sense of responsibility and duty and purpose. And I learned a lot um, from his sense of yearning and wanting to be out there and continue to uh, teach people and be just be in charge. And I wanted to learn how to not just be in charge of myself, because I want to teach others uh, to feel comfortable in the wilderness. I wanted to also understand the natural world, because I found tremendous peace in nature just as a kid a curiosity was peaked when i was outside uh just engaging with people in the outdoors i found to be one of the most connective gratifying things um you know just just playing and simple it's it's very simple but i felt growing up that things were getting a little bit too insulated in a comfortable way insulated away from all the natural things and i wanted to get back to that I felt like I was born um, a long time. I think I would have been a fabulous pioneer woman, <laughs> but although they had it rough. <laughs> but I, I, I think of, you know, if I were to grow up and thrive, it probably would have been at that time. 67 days of just looking at white and grays and some shades of blue. You had people on the expedition who started to suffer you know, mentally, and mm. you were suffering physically. And mm. 
then you, you, you told me that you went through a phase where you did just kind of because of physical difficulties, you know, tendonitis in your neck and stomach issues just kind of collapse. Is that accurate? There was a point where you really felt you sort of fell, the bottom fell out? I, yeah, there, there was. And it was, oh my gosh, you know what I just realized? It was, it was today. It was on this, it was on this day, um, 22 years ago. And I was done. Um, and when I say done, I mean, I was physically, I had nothing left in me to keep going, nothing, zero. Um, and I had nothing left in me mentally that could even push the physical and even emotionally and spiritually, I had nothing. I felt like I didn't believe in anything. I didn't feel anything. I was emotionless. Um, and I was, I just completely uh, stopped and it's a really dangerous place to be because when you stop and you're outside and it's cold, it's minus 20, minus 35 degrees Celsius. Um, it takes a lot to pull you out of that place. And the only thing I could do was actually stop. And so we stopped as a team. Um, because if you're one of the, one person stops, the team stops, you move as a group mm-hmm. and, yeah, that was a very pivotal time for me, actually. It was it was rock bottom. And I wasn't sure at that point if I had anything left at all to keep going. What happened? <laughs> it was a moment of truth for all of us. Um, and Alvera one of the women on the expedition uh, who was in charge of all of our nutrition, all the food and the packaging and planning. She had, <clears throat> she was at that time very depressed and suicidal. And at, at that time, when I had the breakdown on December 23rd, we all had to have a meeting in the tent um, because this was just, it's do or die out there. It, you don't, if you don't move, you die really because you're, you're using up your food, you're using up your fuel, you're three days away from help uh, if you call on a radio. And if somebody's really sick, you have to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. And I was really sick. So we got, we got into the tent, the four of us, into one tent, and we talked, and we just had to discuss, are we going to evacuate Cineva? And if so, it was going to cost $300,000 to evacuate me. Uh, are we going to evacuate Anne as well if Cineva goes out? And if those two go out, do the two of us, Sue Giller and Anne, Anne Bancroft, keep going? And uh, it, these were really tough decisions because the world was watching. Um, a lot of people's eyes were on us. Uh, some people wanted us to fail, expected us to fail, but we had a lot of people pulling for us. So we felt this really deep sense of responsibility to those people, the supporters, the kids as well. And so as a team, uh, we decided that we were going to keep moving. And, and I was committed to doing that. And my mantra, uh, growing up, and it's something I probably read on a magnet or something. I've done somebody's (laughs) fridge or I don't know where you pick these things up, but it was just the, the Churchill, uh, never, never, never give up. And it was the thing that stuck with me. And I just, when I decided that this trip, not decided, but realized rock bottom, that this trip wasn't about me and how dare me be selfish enough to stop, I turned around. And it was that, that turning around and that belief that this trip was much bigger than me, was much bigger than any one of us. It was, it was about everybody else and everything else. And, um, it really brought the four of us together. It became this emotional collective glue between the four of us that if you had watched us on the 23rd and then watched us on the 24th, when we got out of the tent and started moving, it was like a whole new team. It was absolutely amazing. So what got you through it? Is it fair to say it's, 
its bigger purpose, and it was a, a completely unselfish drive. Completely. The selfish thing would have been to give up. I mean, people look at exploration and think, oh, this is so self-serving and so hollow. Sometimes I've heard that cynical view. Yeah. You've, you've heard it before. I have. Here you are at the point of collapse and quit or have some monumental dig down to a totally new place and find some resource to keep going. And it was, it was bigger purpose. Uh, the thoughts, the hopes of, of women and of school kids and of you know, men cheering for you all over the world that made the difference. It was, it, it, John, it was huge because when I think about why I wanted to go on the trip uh, and what I was hungry for at that time, I could not have been served a better platter of truth through, than through my illness and through the, the complete meltdown, body, mind, and spirit. And through that complete meltdown, that's what I got to get rid of, which we all possess and we hold on to almost with you know, tooth and nail, eh, is our ego, who we think we are. And because I got so sick, um, my sense of self was completely, uh, had been stripped away. It melted around me and I didn't even know who I was anymore. Uh, and when all of that went away, who I was, was part of something bigger and that bigger thing was my purpose. And I think it's fair, it's fair for me to say, it's really honest for me to say that through all of that, I found some purpose in this existence, which I had otherwise felt purposeless, a little lost, um, comfortable. You know, I've always been uh, one to probe all of that because I feel that we all as people have extreme gifts. And I've always felt that it's my responsibility to figure it out, figure it out for cinema. And I think that's everybody's responsibility, but we sometimes are so insulated that we, we don't do the work. And I think we need to because we're all here for something really special. I mean, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to absorb all that. I'm trying to respect all that. And, and you and I have talked about this several times already, right? We had a lot of time together <laughs> across yeah. the break and back <laughs> to, to talk. And, and, you know, and, and hearing your story uh, really for the first time one-on-one face-to-face, there we were on the Antarctic Peninsula and... Oh, I, I, when I think about that place, the, the beauty of what you're talking about is, is clearer to me. Mm. You know, it's a, I can't, I still can't quite process Antarctica, right? It's one of those places that is, it's otherworldly. Is, is changing. It's as close to space as I think you can get on this planet. I completely agree. It is. <laughs> It is pure, it is wild, and humbling like nothing I've ever seen before or experienced. Yeah, it is, it is one of the most extreme places that we can um, travel to and be reduced by. Um, you know, in and we travel there in comfort and be reduced by it, just by the sheer enormity of the place, mm-hmm. the sheer um, historical value of it, the sheer volume of it um, in terms of the ice and how old it is, how old the ice sheet is, and what that represents in our world. It's it is it is a very it's a spectacular place. It. It defies description sometimes. It's more, it's more of a feeling that I have for the place than it is a list of facts or hyperbole. I mean, it's this, it has such a strong sense of, of, of place. 
Help yeah, me. it does. Help, help me define this. Help me. Well, you know, I think. Yeah, you know, I I um I've been down there so many times. Um, I can't. I don't count, but it's been a lot, and it's fresh for me every time. And it's fresh for me because it is. Um, it's a mirror. And I'll use this quote by, I think her name is Margaret Sanger. And it goes like this. Perhaps the desert is no more than a mirror, that to make large what you truly are. And it's when people go down there, and I've seen this consistently, regardless of people's backgrounds or age uh, or, you know, gender, anything like that. People go down there and experience, they think they're going down there to experience the penguins, the ice, (laughs) the Drake Passage, (laughs) which they sure do. Um, They think they're going down there to experience, um, you know, the glaciers and the vastness and the light. And all of that is true. All of that is true. But they really go down there almost to meet themselves exactly where they are at that time in their life. And how can you ever prepare for that? You can't. And so there you are in one of the most hostile environments in the world with all the extremes associated with it, highest, coldest, windiest, driest, loneliest place on the face of the earth. There you are at that time in your life. You go down there. And you, you are reflected in the light and the ice and the experience and the fact that the wildlife and the animals are not afraid of you at all. It's just, it's a complete contradiction to the world that we usually leave to go down there. And in that experience, people are humbled and almost reduced to a place of sheer gratitude for the fact that they're able to travel there and also who they are and where they've been and what they've done and, and maybe even what's next. And I, it's, it's almost like a lesson and a huge, I think for, for a lot of people, a wake up call to, um, to their life. And it's, I hope that makes sense because it's, I've seen this transformation and people, um, I've had conversations with people about this when they're down there. Uh, and also when they come back, and I've seen it. Um, I've had experiences with people one-on-one on the deck, on the bow, on the stern, up on the top, you know, in moments where everything is just sort of frozen around the moment and they realize, um, some pivotal thing in their life that comes up that, that anchors the moment. It's just, it's a very, very profound place. Um, I saw, I saw people in, in tears. Oh, yeah. And and you and I had a day at Wilhelmina kayaking with humpback whales <laughs> and, and seeing a totally lost, out-of-place, juvenile, spring-breaking uh, emperor <laughs> penguin. What was he? There he was. And we were there that day um, kayaking with people from all over the world, but one person in particular who was just ecstatic about the whole experience and who getting to know him later found out he's a, he's a major <laughs> executive for one of the biggest oil companies in the world. And I know. Not, 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 <laughs> that does, to me, that just means, you know, this place um, affects everyone. And it's not that I wouldn't expect him to feel that. It's just, it's sort of a non sequitur, right? You would think, yeah, it was it was a little bit of a surprise right, to see I, such joy in that place and such a, a desire to protect that place. And you, you I, can't I leave. You can't come away without a desire to take take care of it. Right? You you can't. And you know the the man you're talking about. That was pretty amazing to watch him actually. And what I um, what really struck me was his his ability to just play and be in the moment. Yeah. There he is, just and absolutely childlike. 
just a great and, guy. Wonderful to see. I know. Yeah, it was that. That was just quite a moment. That was really, really special day for me. My first time ever kayaking down there. So, you now take people to Antarctica regularly, um, but you you took a trip not too long ago with your father on a boat. Mm-hmm. That was I very did. meaningful to you, and and I, you know, I have been able to travel with my father, who's now in his seventies, to Ireland and to Italy, and we had a very special trip to Argentina together, just the two of us. Mm, still, wow! Still trying to push him to go back to Japan, where we spent a lot of time. He was in the military, and and I sort of grew up in southern Japan. But you took your dad on a a boat trip. Right, the mail route is that right? And that's right. It's um, it's an interesting thing. My dad has traveled all of, around the world as a captain on an oil on oil tankers, and has seen so many different things. Um, and of all of the places he's he hasn't traveled was up the coast of Norway, and it's called Hurtigruten, uh, and it is um, <laughs> one more time. Hurtigruten. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that name. Um, and it is the mail route. It used to be the ships going up the west coast of Norway because they're so the fjords are so otherwise inaccessible. And there's a lot of coastal communities um, from the south to the north. And uh, these ships would travel up there and tuck into the bays and into the fjords and deliver food and, and mail. And it's now partly subsidized by the government of Norway. But these trips are go up and down the coast, and there are many of them, actually. And I didn't realize this until three years ago, actually, that my dad, one of his dreams was to take that trip. And so my siblings, my sister, uh, Bettina, my brother Martin, and my other brother Chris, gave my father for his 90th birthday a trip uh, on the Hutiruten. And we just didn't know when it was going to be that we would take him. And then it became apparent that as he was declining, um, he has dementia and, and he's 91 now, um, that it was last October that we would take him. And it was an absolutely fantastic trip. I mean, part of it was just the stories that came out of him just being on a ship and staring out at the ocean. And I had no idea that just that space for him to be in would have been the best gift we could have given him because a flood of memories came and stories, which I'm sure you experienced with your father too, traveling. It's true. And, and yeah. your, your father, you, you've told me, is sort of on the decline. He's, he's losing some of the, maybe the facts, but, mm. but you told me that what remained was the feeling and that there was a special employee on that on that boat who, who maybe worked in one of the kiosks or the ticket counters and who sort of took care of him and took him on, you know, out, out for little walks to see things while on the boat. And, and then can you tell us about his sort of gift to her at the end? Yeah. How do you remember all this? Because it's powerful. (laughs) Because I listen when son of a talks, I, I listen. Oh my gosh! I'm, you, it's just um, astounding to me the the detail that you remember from uh, our time together. That's Maybe really just uh, because we were so seasick when it happened. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was. Uh, you know, I have to tell you when I got to my dad's place, um, I arrived here um, a few days ago, and the first day I got here, I went into my dad's place, and he showed me a postcard. And that postcard was a long card with, with a picture of the ship. Kung Harald was the name of the King Harald, was the name of the ship, the King of Norway. And my dad had gotten a postcard from this woman, Katerina, from that voyage just two days ago. And this woman was a very beautiful Swedish woman, uh, beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside. And my father has always been a charmer. <laughs> and he just hasn't changed a minute. And he really fell, he was smitten with her um, sense of grace and with her 
connectivity. She just really cared about him and wanted to show him on a map where we were and where we were going to go tomorrow. And she took him, you know, took her arm under his arm and they walked, you know, locked together around deck four, which was a wraparound deck. Uh, she would take him for walks outside. She would, she would just be interested in him. And he slowly, his eyes went from staring down to staring up and looking people in the eye. And it was the most amazing transition for my sister and I to see. And at the end of the voyage, um, and I think this is what you're referring to, um, it, it was the most powerful moment. My dad is there, and she's standing behind the uh, counter. She was running the gift shop, and she's standing behind there. My father came up and put his hands on the countertop and grabbed her hands. And he just held her hands, and he stares at her, looks at her in the eyes. And he starts talking Norwegian, because Swedes can understand Norwegians. And he tells her how much of an impact she's had on him and how much, how beautiful he thought she was. And she plays the violin too and how incredible the music was. And it, it just gave him so much life. And it did, all of this came pouring out of him and it was, it was absolutely amazing. I'm, my sister and I are staring at him. We're both standing on either side and we, we had to walk away because it was so emotional. We're both, we both started crying. We looked at each other going, we have to go. And so we just let them, let them be there. And, and after that, we went up on deck seven, and there's chairs outside. And I sat down there with my dad and he's shaking his head. He's not saying anything. He's just shaking his head. And I just looked at him and I said, daddy, what are you thinking about? And he said, I just don't understand why I have to remember numbers because I can't remember numbers. I get so confused, but I never forget how I feel. And when I get to talk about how I feel, things come out of me that are brand new and it makes me feel really alive. And he was referring to that talk with her, and it was just, it really blew me away. He's so full of heart and soul. And it, it made me think when I heard you say that story about a quote I had heard that, you know, history sort of tells us, or maybe facts and figures tell us, you know, how things are or were, but poetry reminds us of how it felt and that your father or elders in our lives are especially valuable to us in communicating the poetry of life. I'm just going to leave that there. You know, I, um, this afternoon I took my father to go and see his, his, uh, girlfriend. Um, is she, is she Swedish? <laughs> I'm telling you, he's Does a she charmer. Play the violin? Yeah, of course he is. <laughs> no, it wasn't her. This is another woman. <laughs> the woman today was Ragnil. She's an artist, and um, uh, they they find poetry together by reciting dicks, like uh, 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 verses, poetry yeah, yeah. together, and they both. That's what they remember, and they can. That comes to them without without effort. It was so beautiful. It sounds like a scamp. <laughs> a scamp? What's a scamp? I don't know, just kind of a rascal, kind of a rake. I bet he's like a super charming guy. He's a super charming guy. He really is. And a lot of women fall in love with him because he's just so, he's just a very kind, yeah. kind, gentle, loving man. He must be just disarmingly honest. Disarmingly honest. Very true. Yeah. Well, you're no slouch. You've you've <laughs> also, if I'm not wrong, crossed Greenland, right? I have. Yeah, I crossed was after the Sierra Nevadas, crossed King George Island. Not easy. You don't go for easy, do you? Um, I'd like to. I I'd love. 
a time to maybe go with a little bit of, you know, just a small backpack or a small suitcase, I guess we call it, um, and go to a beach. That sounds kind of nice, <laughs> but that's just not what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still learning. <laughs> You're coming skiing with me soon. I, I would, I can't wait. I can't wait to do that with you and Aaron. I so look forward to it. And the girls all need to meet you. Your Maybe. girls look absolutely adorable. Mostly, yes. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> They're wonderful. They're my greatest teachers. Um, Aren't they? Are there any nuggets of advice you'd want to pass along to people? Um, yes, I, there are. Um, and it's, it's, it's so simple. I mean, and it's advice I give myself. Um, and so if I ever want to point the finger out there and say, this is what anybody should do, I want to heed it for myself and I'm, and continually reminding myself and, um, and learning it is we must never, ever, ever lose faith in humanity um, and in our ability to transform, um, you know, things that are wrong. And we must never, ever uh, doubt our abilities because we humans, and I am, I am proof of this because I don't feel like I'm an extraordinary woman. No more than I might think anyone else is um, different from me. What I think is that that I've done something extraordinary, but I see that in everybody. And sometimes we just need to look at people in our lives, family, friends, colleagues, and actually tell them what we think about them. Give them, give them compliments. Share something that you see in them that they might not otherwise see in themselves. And that might just be permission that they need to do something extraordinary. It's really simple. And I love the power of that. And we live in such a, a world where we're where the, the conversational, the, the salons, you know, getting together and problem solving and talking together, unless you're in a family and you do that. And I'm sure your family is one that's, you're, I can't wait to be at your dinner table because <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of great conversation around your dinner table. All at once, um, usually. All at once. <laughs> <laughs> and that will all be good. But just the, the power of community around conversation, it's so important and it's connective tissue and just the element of curiosity, we have to keep it alive in ourselves and in our natural world. And some, and I think we get that by traveling. We get it by, you know, you know, connecting with people. We get it by being vulnerable. We get it by asking for help. Um, we get it by helping. It's just that curiosity in all things. I think it's so important to keep all of that alive so that we show up. What... Um... What's next for you? Any, any big plans? Um, I am. I feel like I have a big plan percolating inside, and I don't know what it is yet, but I, I feel like I would like to do another long trip. I would like to do another expedition. Any and I think, region in mind? Um, it might be the Arctic mm-hmm. again. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't decided on what, but there's something calling me at this stage and age in my life to, to, to just keep, to ride that edge a little bit more. Um, but it will be a trip with a different purpose. And so it's still percolating in me and I have to keep it in me until it's ready to pop. And then I, then I have no choice but to share it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but that's, that's in there. Before we it's go, kind could- of fun. Could you just describe for me what that feeling, that calling feels like? How do you recognize it? How do you distinguish it from maybe other thoughts that come? Um, I think how I would distinguish that from other thoughts that come is a, a calling is, to me, it might start with a thought, and then it might start with a lot of questions around, well, where did that come from? Well, what is that about? And then 
if you take your judgment away from it and you keep questioning it and creating space for the questions to breathe and just have some space, it goes deep, deep inside you. And when it starts to sink into you and into your soul, so to speak, it then takes over. And when it starts to take over, that calling becomes your purpose. And it's, it's almost something that is in complete alignment with what you're supposed to be doing at this point in your life. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's that you found that. And I think musicians find it in composition. Um, skiers might find it in a downhill race. It's that state of flow that we get to be in. And that's, to me, what a calling feels like it's it's when everything is aligned does that make sense more and more Mm. yeah you're a rock star (laughs) no more than you oh way way more thank you no always a pleasure to spend time with you thank you likewise john taking this precious time away from I feel guilty that you're away from your father. I hope he's napping or with his lady. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm helping him out, getting you out of the house. I think you're helping him out. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Thank you. See you on the slopes here soon. See you in New York in the spring. Yeah, thanks, John. Really a pleasure. Lots of love. Okay. Big hugs. Bye. If you'd like to know more about custom travel in Latin America and the Antarctic, reach out to us at landedtravel.com. Since 2006, Landed's success has been built on word-of-mouth referrals. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to rate the podcast or share it with a friend. The Landed podcast is sponsored by our friends at Bluffworks, makers of travel clothing designed to go the distance and help you focus on the journey ahead. See their catalog of travel clothing at bluffworks.com. Thank you for listening.